Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, this is Jordana Jarrett, editor at the Webby Awards. And Jason Brickhill, social media manager at the Webbies. We're so hyped because the nominees for the 23rd annual Webby Awards have been announced. Finally! Yes! Now it's time for you to vote in the Webby People's Voice Awards for your favorite nominees across all categories and media types, including websites, advertising, media, and PR, video, mobile apps and voice, social, podcasts, and games. You can vote for your favorite nominees from now until Thursday, April 18th to make sure the very best take home a Webby People's Voice Award. Make sure your voice is heard in deciding the best of the internet. Jordana, where do people vote? Vote Vote.webbyawards.com Vote.webbyawards.com Go vote! Now let's start the show. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Humanity, colonization, Phobos, monolith, Mars, all these robots are yours. Earth, it's in your hands. Curiosity kills. Ignorance, encourage science. Hey there, welcome back to the Webby Podcast. Few things on the internet bring people together in the way that NASA does. My next guest, Veronica McGregor, is to thank for that. She runs news and social media for NASA's Webby-winning Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where she created NASA's very first Twitter and Facebook accounts. Veronica shepherded NASA JPL into the social media era in 2008 when she started tweeting and answering questions about its Phoenix mission to Mars as the Phoenix robotic spacecraft itself which it turns out a lot of people wanted to hear about. What started as interacting with NASA JPL's 45,000 followers has grown into a cross-agency, multi-platform, and interactive effort to make data collected from NASA's planetary explorations available to internet users around the world. But in 2008, changes in the journalism industry inspired Veronica's team to try their hand at social media. If we start with when we became interested in social media, it was actually in the mid-2000s, 2008, 7 and 8. And it was because there were a lot of reporters who had covered us for ages who were either laid off or bought out. And then in April 2008, I learned about Twitter and found that that would be a perfect way to get news of our missions to the public. It was interesting, though, that it was happening at the same time that we were seeing a decline in the number of reporters covering us. What's also interesting is I think that has all shifted back. I think there is a really strong interest in science and technology out there now. And so now we see that um, there's a lot of reporters now who cover us, but they're covering us from different news outlets than we used to see. Hmm. So really, before you were doing this job, you were in more of a, I don't want to, maybe traditional is not the right word, but more of like a media relations where you were focused on trying to get the stories of NASA to traditional reporters to be covered in the news. 
Yeah. So it was a media relations office, and I had actually worked um, in broadcast news for 15 years before coming to JPL. And so I had covered a lot of NASA missions, and a lot of the staff here in the office, they were also former journalists. And, you know, we took this role. This was a very traditional, you know, heritage role of going to the other side and then feeding the media with the information for them to do their stories. And that yeah. was that was the way it was being done. There was really no person-to-person contact other than NASA's, you know, exhibits. And so tell me about that first, uh, you know, today NASA is, is like, known the world over for its, like, amazing social media presence. Um, we'll talk about some of them. There's there's accounts for different missions. There's accounts for different ideas. There, I mean, there's so much out there. Um, but tell me about sort of what was the first experience using Twitter. It was for It was for a Mars mission, right? Right. It was for the Mars-Phoenix mission. And uh, as we were getting closer to landing and we were getting worried about media coverage, we were also worried that we were landing on a Sunday of Memorial Day weekend in the evening. And, you know, nobody's really home watching news on those types of weekends. We wanted to have a way to get news that we had landed directly to people's mobile devices And Twitter was relatively new then, and it was free, and it did not have advertising. It checked all the boxes of what we could use. Um, And so we decided to to open up that account, and it started the conversation. You know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't just pushing information out. It was interacting. So I think going into it before even the very first post, I was thinking, I'm just going to put updates here. And then, you know, I I experimented doing updates in the first person as if I were the lander. And as soon as I did it in the first person, people started writing back, asking questions, cheering it on. And this started a couple weeks before landing. So I decided to keep it in that format. And then, you know, it turned into spending hours a day answering people's questions. Mm. So once we realized that people wanted this conversation, people had so many questions about why does a mission do this and not that? And why did you send back a black and white picture of Mars? Did you not send a color camera? I mean, there were really good basic questions that were coming back to us that really opened my eyes to what we were not doing right in communicating our missions. It, it showed me the, you know, the blank spaces that people had in their knowledge that we just took for granted that they knew. And immediately I started having my staff add you know, new paragraphs to press releases or go back and and adjust something based on all of these questions that I was getting over social media. And um, immediately other missions at NASA saw the value and what was going on, and then they started their accounts. And so uh, eventually NASA, uh, as an agency, had their account going. And then, you know, we got the astronauts to to start Twitter feeds, um, and it's been going great ever since. Tell me a little bit about because sort of one of the things you did, and you alluded to it there, and you've, and you've done since then a lot, is sort of speaking in the first person for, you know, robots, landing craft, uh, call it, you, you can describe the, the hardware better than I can. Um, and you sort of, you were talking about it there, that you started talking in the first person. And that was definitely like a, a different thing. You know, when you followed that Twitter account, you sort of felt like you were getting you know, like updates from the rover or from from the, the ship itself. Mm-hmm. Right. And that one was a lander. It wasn't moving anywhere on Mars. And, uh, you know, I 
I I asked myself a lot of questions first about before before I tried doing that in the first person because I wasn't sure that's where I wanted to go. I did not want to anthropomorphize the mission too much. And um, we, we certainly have a great affection for our rovers and landers here, and we refer to them as she because they are a ship of exploration in mm-hmm. the way we use in English, the feminine and referring to ships. But I was really wanted to be careful about doing that. Um, but the reason I did was the fact that it opened a conversation. When I put out a tweet that said, in three weeks, the Mars-Phoenix mission will land on Mars, you know, people would receive that tweet, but not generally write back or ask a question. So the next time I tweeted that, I said, you know, I'm landing on Mars in, in 15 days. And immediately there was a difference. And so many people wrote back and said, well, what are you going to do? You know, what's the purpose of you going there? What do you, you know, what's the objective? Are you solar powered? Are you a nuclear powered? When I saw that it was going to help kind of break the ice, so to speak, um, in, in starting that conversation, I just decided that it was the best way to go. And we did it that way for the remainder of that um, mission. And which made it, it down the line, it became difficult when we had to say goodbye on that mission, because I had to do it in the first person also, which I think became a, a very cheerful endeavor for a lot of people, the followers and myself. Yeah. Um, but there were other missions, the um, Spirit and Opportunity rovers, uh, we did one account for the two of them called At Mars Rovers, and the project manager for that mission said, I love what you're doing with Phoenix. Will you do a Twitter account for our, our rovers? But I don't want it in the first person. Could you do mm-hmm. it in the third person? And I said, well, you know, I I said, yes, absolutely. And that's what we did the entire time. Um, but I also told him that I will never reach the same level of conversation with the followers. I predicted yeah. that. And I also said, you'll never have the same number of followers as Phoenix. Right. And that became true. It was very easy to, um, and this was, they were ongoing at the same time. Um, the At Mars Rovers account um, always stayed smaller. It always had less engagement, but it was still very, very useful. And what's interesting is Opportunity recently stopped operating after 15 years on Mars and um, somebody brought up, you know, the question about anthropomorphizing the rovers and social media again to me. And I said, well, we never really did with that mission. Right. I think it's just something that happens whether we do it or not, especially when you've got rovers and robots that are, are emissaries and they're doing this work for us. And, you know, we're getting back daily updates. It's hard for people not to get this kind of uh, affection for them. Yeah, and I, I mean, I remember when uh, struggling with this question, I like to say when uh, Phoenix died, it, I guess it stopped communicating. Maybe it would be, but I remember that, and I remember it definitely having like a you had a more personal for like a more empathetic feeling or felt sadder about it than it seemed like you normally would have in the past, you know. And it seems like so much of that was because it was you were speaking you know, from the first person and that we had sort of had this different type of connection. And, you know, back then that was really, that was like before people were talking to like Alexa. And I think it was probably before there was people talking to Siri. So, you know, it was definitely one of the first times where sort of like lots and lots of people were, you know, outside of watching, you know, 2001 or something, were feeling like they were talking to a machine. Yeah, you're probably right. Yes, it was long before Siri and Alexa um, you know, as long as it was helping people learn more about the mission and lo- more about what the objectives were on Mars, that mission was digging, 
beneath the surface of the planet looking for ice, and it discovered it. It was a very exciting day, and putting out that tweet uh, to announce that Phoenix had discovered ice, buried ice on Mars, was incredibly exciting. Um, It's still listed by Twitter as one of the top 10 tweets on the platform of all time. Uh, in terms of, I guess, engage, I think just significance, really, because it was um, such a major breakthrough and, and people were learning so much. Um, it also generated so much change. I remember there was a science writer who later uh, at a conference referred to that as the tweet that changed her life because as a reporter, she realized that she needed to now be on social media and needed to be following what we were doing. We we issued the announcement to the news media at the same time. I, I actually, maybe a couple minutes after that, posted it on Twitter. So reporters didn't have, you know, they were still used to the traditional way of getting that press release and then they were gonna break the news. Right. And that was um, a first time that NASA, you know, broke the news directly to the public through social media. And um, for a while, traditional press was terrified of Twitter hmm. because of that. And um, so it really did change even um, journalism where reporters decided they needed to be on Twitter and then they found you know ways that they could actually use this to their advantage. Um, so it really did sar- sort of um, set off a chain of events on um, how things are covered today, which is really exciting. And and again, if, if people learned a little bit more science and uh, got to appreciate what our scientists and engineers do on a daily basis, that was really what was so exciting about doing that was every day saying a step of what was taking place and hearing back from people, you know, they had no idea how difficult it was to run a mission on a day-to-day basis on another planet. They had never been exposed to a day-by-day um, accounting of it. Usually the press would cover a launch, a landing, or something going wrong. You know, right. that's what we used to joke about. And now people were able to see that um, they were able to see all the little bumps along the road that we would, you know, little obstacles we would encounter, you know, the arm not operating properly or us having difficulty um, getting some soil to put into an experiment. And they got to appreciate how difficult it was for engineers here on Earth to try to write, you know, the software to to tell the, the lander to do it a different way. And then, you know, you're basically trying to tell a machine 80 million miles away what to do. Yeah. Um, so that was really exciting. I, I hope it inspired some people to go into engineering or STEM careers. That would be wonderful if it did. We actually started events later after that as a result that we do know that we um, inspired some people to change their careers. And uh, that came out of that account as well. And so tell me a bit about now, like, you know, 10, 11 years after Phoenix, where is NASA with social media? What are, like, for lack of a better word, what are the social media missions that you're excited about that are ongoing now? So the big things going on right now, um, let's see, here at JPL, we're getting ready for Mars 2020 rover. Um, that rover is being built in our clean room right now. It's coming together. It's amazing to walk by that room and look in and see all of the different parts of the spacecraft and the rover. Tell people what a clean room is if they don't know what that is. Oh, if you don't know. know, yeah. So it's it's the room where if you've ever seen the shot of people who look like they're dressed head to toe in white bunny suits with masks on and they're, they look, look, look like surgeons, um, basically, but they're putting together spacecraft. And we do this in a clean room because we don't want any of our bugs here on Earth, any of our 
organisms, bacteria, or anything on this spacecraft because we're sending it to Mars. We want it to be very clean when it gets to Mars so that we're not introducing something uh, to that planet. Um, that's a very important goal, planetary protection. Mm. Uh, very important for us to keep these areas pristine because we want to explore them and not find something that we that just hitchhiked with us. Right. So um, we have Mars 2020 rover being built in our clean room. So we're going to be doing a lot. We'll be ramping up and doing a lot more social media with that. Is that in the 2020 is it will be departing for Mars in 2020? Exactly. Okay. It will uh, launch in July of 2020 and land on Mars in, I believe it'll be February of 2021. It's a big rover. It looks a lot like Curiosity, but it carries all new science instruments on it. Mm. Um, we'll be putting in, as we did for Curiosity, we had a webcam where people could go and watch Curiosity being built. And so we'll have one set up fairly soon for Mars 2020. And we don't just put up the webcam. We also then open a chat box every day so that we can answer questions from people who are viewing it and might be wondering, you know, what is it, what are the engineers doing? What's, you know, the, the arm will go on soon. The wheels will go on. It'll start looking more like a rover. It looks like a big box right now. Um, it'll start being tested. It's really a lot of fun to watch. So we'll have that live feed going for several months before that ships out to Kennedy Space Center and gets ready for launch. The other big thing in the agency right now, though, is the whole Moon to Mars initiative. And, um, you know, you saw uh, recently SpaceX did their first launch of their crew vehicle on the Dragon. And that is the first step in being able to launch um, people from the United States again up to the space station or beyond mm -hmm. uh, for going back to the moon and eventually going on to Mars. So there, are, uh, both SpaceX and Boeing uh, both have rockets that they are developing with crew capsules that would carry humans. And SpaceX did their first test launch with a uncrewed capsule. And next they will be doing a launch with actually a crew inside. And then there will be the same two tests by Boeing to um, test their crew capsule. So there's a lot of work mm. being done here. This year, These all these test launches will be done. And, uh, and is that at JPL also? No, no, no. Okay. So this is just what's going on really across yep. the agency. Mm -hmm. uh, this is something that is not at all managed by JPL. We really have very little to do. We have nothing to do with the human space program. Occasionally, we have science instruments that go to the space station, and they get attached there. But we work across the agency uh, very collaboratively to make sure that we understand what is very important to the agency going on, um, that we can all help support and spread the word and point people to the resources of uh, where they might find more information on these test launches or watch the live feed of the launches. One of the things that was interesting early on is we looked at a lot of the NASA accounts to see if there was a lot of crossover you, you might assume that if someone's you know, following one NASA account, they're following all of them. But it wasn't true. We actually found that we had very different audiences with only a little bit of overlap. So that's why it's very important for us. People who are interested in Mars and Mars missions you know, might not be seeing in their feed that there's this test launch going on uh, mm -hmm. regarding the crew capsule. So you know, that's where we can help out, and we want to expose people to as many different programs so they can see, you know, the breadth of, of what the, um, the agency is doing today. 
And you currently, I mean, we currently have Insight, right? That's on on Mars, I believe. Yep. Is that right? Yeah. And, and Insight is in a way similar to Phoenix in that it's also it's also digging. Phoenix was digging. It was one of the big things it was doing, if I remember. Is that right? It actually looks very similar. You could call them cousins. Okay. Um, th- they were both built at Lockheed Martin. They are both JPL managed missions for NASA. And uh, they, they look very similar. Uh, the only difference on them are the instruments that they have. And, um, yeah, Phoenix had a, a arm that would dig down, and, and then it was delivering soil into instruments, and it was looking for water ice. Insight's really interesting. It, it went to Mars, but it went to Mars because we really wanted to do some tests on a rocky planet, and that was the best planet for us to do it on other than Earth, uh, to see how rocky planets form. So Insight is actually looking at the interior of Mars. It's going to be measuring Mars quakes. It's going to be analyzing how those quakes happen. Well, by analyzing the the signature of those quakes, actually, it can um, tell us something more about the interior of the planet, which will help us understand more about how the rocky planets formed. And it also has this heat probe on it that is going to be hammering down under the surface of Mars, and uh, and it'll be at different intervals, uh, taking the temperature. And from that, we hope to learn more about what is at the center of Mars. How far deep does it does it go? Does it Well, go, if it goes it the measure? full distance, it yeah. will be about um, 15 feet. Wow. And so, yeah, it's a very interesting mission. And like most of our missions, it's got a lot of international involvement. Uh, you know, I think I, I find it really satisfying that when it comes to exploring space, boy, you know, the whole world is on board. And our audience isn't just the audience here in the United States, although the audience here in the United States is the audience that pays for our missions, our NASA missions. But we carry instruments from other countries, and they provide those. And likewise, other countries launch spacecraft and very exciting spacecraft that we put NASA instruments on. And so there's this fabulous collaboration among many, many nations and with the European Space Agency, French, German, Canadian, uh, Italian, I could just go on and on, where we are collaborating because we view this exploration as being a human endeavor um, as much as, you know, it, it belonging to any single country. And, of course, the International Space Station is international. You know, it has we work very closely with the Russians and the Japanese have a module and the Europeans. And so I find that uh personally to be just a really just another added bonus to um, being with the agency that it uh, it really is um, a greater good for for the for the world and what um, with insight uh, are you back to speaking in the first person for the for its social account actually we are and I I am not personally handling that account um, and in fact I it's been a while since I've been personally handling a lot of the accounts I used to be the one and only member of the social media team, and thankfully now I've got uh, we've got several people who are doing it. And um, the Insight Twitter account, NASA Insight, it is being handled by some um, members of our Mars engagement team. In fact, you know everything that we do here in NASA that people might see on the internet, it's you know there's a very amazing, dedicated, fabulous team behind just about everything that we do. Um, that helps us get the word out, whether there are, you know, visualization artists and animators and the people who are writing the social posts. Um, it's uh, it's become much more than just me, 
the old days when it was me just sitting at my computer, usually at home in the middle of the night. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. One thing I was thinking of is sometimes I think you brought up the animations. And, you know, sometimes when you look at some of the videos and animations, I don't want to say it's not clear if it's real or not because it it's clear if you pay attention, right? But, you know, sometimes I think we're sometimes like when one of these rovers lands, I, you know, often I think we're looking at some sort of a visualization of it landing. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I always wonder sort of like, are those visualizations things that scientists in real time are using so that they have a, you know, an understanding of what's going on visually? Or or is that mostly material that's made so the public um, understands that it's landing? Or is it both, I guess? It started out being more for the public to understand what a mission was doing and what it might look like as it was, you know, not even just a Mars lander, but maybe something flying past Jupiter, you know, how Mm. it would look as it's oriented, you know, towards um, the planet, taking pictures. And that was often done um, really for the public to understand what this looked like. And I think it's a big part of why... It's, you know, people have been able to connect with it even more than just like when we're reading a newspaper article back in the day or watching something is that you really, you know, it feels like it's in real time and it's unfolding on Twitter and here I am landing and here's the clip of me. You know, it's it's very exciting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And well, so what was interesting was, um, gosh, I'm trying to remember what year it was, maybe 2004. Uh, we were arriving at Saturn with a mission called Cassini and our visualization team was able to take the animation of what it would look like arriving at at Saturn and starting an engine burn to get captured into orbit. And they were able to time it to precisely, you know, the length of time that it would be. And we ended up using that in mission control. We were using it in our broadcast to explain to the public what was going to happen next. But the mission team was also watching it. You know, they were watching, of course, you know, Doppler and all sorts of other things to give them the idea of where things should be. We really want to be careful. We know that people get confused. We've seen not so much on the animations where people are confused, but um, a lot of times for um, artist concepts, uh, particularly of uh, exoplanets, planets that are outside of our solar system. So now we're very careful to stamp artist concept right on the image instead of only putting it in the caption. Um, We really do want to work hard to make sure that people know the difference. Now, even our real material, though, there is a a group of people out there, especially on YouTube, that will always say that, oh, that's just CGI, that's not real. And and, um, yeah, that's so unfortunate because, yeah, you wish people could understand and and appreciate that uh, what they're seeing is absolutely amazing and it is all real data. I mean, Veronica, where would we be if there weren't people who said that we had gone know. to the moon? I mean, it's the, it's the, yep. it's the lifeblood of the, of the Internet. I know. <laughs> Thank God. Uh, um, so uh, with, like, all this interaction, it's two-way, right? So obviously 
you're really engaging the public and they're learning a lot more by interacting with you and the team and NASA and scientists. What's the reverse of that? Like, how is NASA changing or how is JPL changing? How are these missions changing, if at all, based on more interaction with the public? Well, let's say a good example would be probably the Juno mission. Juno is a mission that is at Jupiter right now. And at the time that it was being developed, uh, this was a mission that was going to be studying Jupiter's atmosphere. Uh, and it was going to be what we call squiggly line science. There wasn't going to be, um, there, in fact, there were going to be no pretty pictures. It wasn't even a carry a camera. And I think whether or not it was social media, it could have even been before social media, but people realized that, you know, pics or it didn't happen. We really owe it to the public if we're going to go all the way to Jupiter that we want to get them images. Right. So a camera was put on that spacecraft, but then the camera was put on solely for outreach purposes. Uh, it really wasn't necessary for the scientists to have to do the kind of science they are doing. So that camera is there, and the public actually does all of the processing on the images. Uh, NASA does not have a team assigned to that camera. And you've probably seen some of these images recently from the Juno mission, and they are absolutely spectacular. Uh, the spacecraft gets very close to Jupiter, does kind of a big loop around the planet, coming very close and then swinging back out again. And every time it comes in close, I mean, we're just seeing these pictures of the swirls in the atmosphere like you've never seen before. What does it mean to process? What does that mean, process the images? Well, the camera sends back these raw images, and they're in files that, frankly, I find really hard to manipulate myself. Because they're, enorm they're enormous, right? Yeah, they're enormous, and they're often they're in strips. And then you have to put these together. Um, you know, the way it works, the cameras take, like, you know, even on Mars, you know, we take a, a giant panorama of Mars is actually made up of, of uh, hundreds of smaller individual frames that are then put together in a mosaic. And it's sort of the same with these images at Jupiter. You're getting slices of Jupiter that then still have to be put together. Uh, and then you need to colorize them. Now you can either add more color to them. You can be very scientific and go on, you know, based on color, you can be very artistic with them. We've seen, you know, across the board, people do different things with them. Um, and they've come out with just some amazing uh, projects. And those are visible on a website. It's Mission Juno. Dot com where you can go and see some of these images. Or if you're someone who really likes to work with um, space imagery, then you can go to that site and you can learn everything you need to know about how you can get involved in it. There's a big community out there uh, that is doing processing imagery, uh, even from the Mars missions. You know, we'll spend weeks taking these individual images of Mars and our we do have a team involved in, in the camera that will put together a beautiful panorama once all these individual in images come down. But there's an amateur community that will take all of those images as they arrive because we put them straight to the web, and they will build the panorama. Oftentimes they'll have theirs done before we have ours done because we're trying to do the most scientifically accurate version in terms of the colorization right. and everything. We do have color cameras, but they're still balancing and you know, there's different things. So, yeah, it's really a lot of fun. There's a, a huge group out there that is helping uh, in some way to either process images. And a lot of these end up in the news media, the ones uh, they, they might mm -hmm. have originated. You know, they come from a NASA mission, but then it's ended up in the hands of an amateur enthusiast who is then putting together these mosaics and pretty pictures 
Um, it, it was very helpful for Spirit and Opportunity. Uh, there was a large community doing this online. Large, I mean, like, you know, there were several hundred people online who were taking images back from Spirit and Opportunity and putting together Dust Devil movies and, and other things where the, the scientist on the mission would log into this amateur community's website just to see what the amateurs had come up with overnight and see if they had found anything interesting in the, in the images from Mars. We look for whatever ways we can to engage the public and bring them in. You know, the, another thing that we actually started as a result of the um, the success on Twitter was, especially with the Phoenix account, when the Phoenix account ended at the end of 2008, there were, you know, a good number of followers there that we had to say goodbye to. And um, I actually wanted to do an event where I could bring them to JPL and have them meet some of the scientists and engineers that had worked on that Phoenix mission. And so we put out a invitation for 120 of our social media followers to come to JPL, spend an evening with us, and get a behind-the-scenes tour. And when we opened up the registration for that, it was free. I think all the slots were filled in a matter of minutes, and it turned out that people wanted to fly in from around the world and across the country to attend. And we didn't realize uh, it was going to be quite that popular, but um, 120 people came that night to JPL, and we had such a great event taking them behind the scenes and sharing with them what we were doing. And we called it putting the social back into social media because we were actually meeting them face to face. Um, they met face-to-face, and there was this magic that occurred there because space fans meeting other space fans face-to-face, even though they didn't live in the same area, it, it kicked off the an online community. And um, to date now, NASA has held over 150 of these events, and they've been held at every NASA center. And there are thousands of alumni at this point who have participated. And it's been a really amazing way to follow the careers and the paths of people who have completely changed their careers based on spending a day uh, witnessing a NASA mission in person. Wow. And it's, it's really exciting. And it's so exciting to be online and even on my own personal Twitter account, and I'm seeing people from that very first event that we held in 2009, and they're all still talking to each other, and uh, and they're doing amazing things. Do you think there's a way that the public can now have a bigger impact on like the questions that are being asked of what's happening in the world and to the Earth, and that that can inform the science that NASA does? You know, I mean, I think people have such a thirst for knowledge around things like climate change and what's happening to our planet. And a lot of what NASA does is research those things. Can people have some sort of effect on what gets researched now? You know, that's they can if they go into the sciences and then propose a NASA mission. You know, every Mm -hmm. every NASA mission starts with a science proposal. It's not just, hey, we want to go back to Mars. These scientists, these missions are often competed. But they come up with a science question that needs to be answered and and an idea for how we can do it. And they're such ingenious ideas um, of how we can measure, you know, soil moisture from space um, or the salinity of the oceans from space or, you know, water on Mars. And they propose um, the mission or they might propose a science instrument that's going to go on the mission. And these are all competed. And NASA selects the 
the, the instrument that's going to provide the best science and is also, you know, has the rewards are going to outweigh the risks because, of course, there's a certain amount of risk in developing any new science instrument. So there's, you know, they weigh those factors. And so that's how we end up moving forward on all these different science questions. So the public can certainly follow the accounts. Um, there's so many. I mean, if you're interested in Earth science, then you might want to follow the um, NASA Earth account or NASA climate. And we do put a very high priority on responding to the public's questions about, you know, how do we know this and where is the science for this? Oh, yeah. The best part of NASA accounts is to click tweets and replies. For sure. Ah, yeah, it sure 100%. is. Oh, do that on Asteroid Watch. Yeah, yeah that's an interesting one. Um, I want to talk to you about that. <laughs> we'll wrap up with that. It's a great place to sure. end. I don't. You tell me. I don't even think it's probably an account that's under your supervision because I would imagine it's more of a NASA thing than a JPL thing. Is that right? <laughs> Actually, it is the one account that I still hold. Oh, it is. 100%. Okay. Yes. <laughs> All right. Even better. Great. I thought I was yeah. going to force you to answer questions on behalf of somebody else, but I have you right here. That's great. Um, yep. So for people who don't know about the Asteroid account, the Asteroid Watch account, I wanted to talk about it because I love the little weird parts of the internet. And one of the things about this account is, first of all, it basically it's it's you providing us information about when an asteroid is going by and, thank God, telling us that it's not hitting the Earth so right. far. Um, there's a million followers of this account. Which is a lot. I mean, that's more. I mean, the other many, many other accounts have a lot of followers. That's more followers than some of the landing uh, and some of the rovers have had. Yes. Yeah. Um, so there's like a lot of people, I guess, that are very concerned and or interested in asteroids hitting us, it turns out. Yes, it turned out there really were a lot. Um, when we started that account, and gosh, it's been open for a while. Uh, I want to say it's probably been about eight years, nine years. And we went from, you know, zero to a million followers, I think, in two months. Um, we originally were posting about asteroids that were passing near to Earth um, and, and letting people know that they were not going to be a concern and, uh, you know, we try to say, you know, this asteroid, some of them are recently discovered. Some are ones that we've known about for years. All of this information, by the way, is online. Anyone can look up the table of, of all upcoming uh, close passes by asteroids, and it's updated with every new discovery. Um, but, yeah, we, it's, what was funny is we get really excited about these things, and we think it's really neat. Sometimes when asteroids pass close to Earth... Uh, we've just saved hundreds of millions of dollars because we didn't have to send a spacecraft to that asteroid to study it. It's like a freebie, and we uh, turn on all of our telescopes. Right. We do radar observations of the asteroid, and those are those provide amazing detail of what the asteroid looks like. Um, so for us, we get very excited about them. But I found out very quickly that um, the rest of the public did not followers did not get excited. Uh, they actually got very afraid. And uh, that's also when I realized that the followers of that account are not space fans, um, or at least, you know, they weren't back back in those days. Uh, they are people who are mostly just really worried about asteroids. And so I, I had to start being very careful. And that is why that account stays in, in just the hands of one person today, is just to make sure that we're talking with um, a similar voice that, you know, when we're telling people about a near asteroid, 
there has to be a listening time to answer their questions, of course. Uh, we always want to assure them that, uh, you know, it, it's one that we know. And they, people would ask, can it just veer off course? How do you know it's not going to veer off course? So we have to explain a little bit about the physics and, and the orbits. And um, so I've, I've actually gotten away from just posting about near uh, near passing asteroids all the time. And I'm trying to focus more on just some of our asteroid missions and some of the science that we learn. And it's not just asteroids, but comets. And um, it's been a, it's been a great account. It really has been. Uh, but there are some people, you know, I had to become sensitive to that very quickly that I was actually scaring people. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's one I use very carefully. And I mean, most most of these that are passing, we're talking I mean, we're talking in the tens of thousands of miles away, right? Yeah. You know, people get very excited when there's an asteroid that's passing between Earth and our moon, or at least within that distance, which is about 238,000 miles. Um, You know, that's really, really close in astronomical terms. So those get the most attention. And, you know, it actually happens fairly frequently, at least once a month, I'd say. And they're often very, very tiny. Uh, If people are thinking that, like, oh, it seems like there's a lot more asteroids that we're hearing about these days than we ever used to, well, the program for tracking, discovering and tracking asteroids is actually relatively new. It's only been in the last 20 years that we've been doing this. And the observatories that we use are getting better and better and better so that we are actually able to see an asteroid you know, at that distance, that's only a few meters across. You know, that's crazy. Right, they're pretty small. Yeah, we're talking right. about, like, trying to see a gnat from, you know, a couple miles away. And um, thankfully, we, so we find, you know, lots and lots of these little ones. We think we have found 90 to 95% of all of the big ones because the statistics, you know, statistically the numbers of, of finding more has gotten, has dropped so much. We found them all in the early years. So the big ones... We can see them from a great distance. They they are not going to like walk up and surprise us. the uh, The smaller ones, you know, we we don't see them until the last minute. But it's okay; they're so small they would have just burned up in the atmosphere anyways, and created a really nice fireball. Which, if anyone's ever seen one, it's like the best thing you'll ever see in your life. It's so amazing. They're not big; they could be basketball sized, maybe Volkswagen sized, and they make a real. You think that you know we're it's a, a giant asteroid or a comet coming through the atmosphere from the look of the, the streak, but it's really just something very tiny. And then we learned a lot, you know, with the Chelyabinsk meteor that um, exploded over Chelyabinsk, Russia a few years ago. And we actually learned about that event first through the Asteroid Watch Twitter account. So I was really, really pleased with that. Somebody saw it and reported it there. Exactly. Huh. Somebody immediately wrote to Asteroid Watch and said, somebody's reporting a meteor shower over Russia and I thought, well, that doesn't sound right. And uh, I started looking for some YouTube videos and found some. And at first, it looked like a regular fireball event and not too extraordinary. But then I heard the boom. Now, there are instruments that measure these things happening. So the scientists were going to get all the data within, you know, and learn about this. But I was actually able to give them a little heads up to say, we've just had an event over Russia. And um, people are posting the videos online right now. And so they knew immediately to start calling out to the scientists around the world who monitor for these things so that they could look up and see, you know, they can estimate the size and the um, extent of the blast and everything from that by these monitors that we have around the world. Now, we didn't see that one. It wasn't too big that it was going to cause a lot 
lot of damage. The reason we didn't see it was it was a daytime event, and that means it was actually heading towards Earth from the direction of the sun, which makes it more difficult to see. Uh, Is that account a good place to go if you're interested in knowing when there might be, like, fireballs that you could see, you know, like knowing ahead of time? Uh, There's a couple places, actually. Uh, There's also a meteor office. NASA has a meteor office run out of our center in... um, in Huntsville, Alabama, the Marshall Center. So they have actually a meteor office, and they're watching for those. Those are, you know, smaller, mm-hmm. and but they're very important to know about because we have a lot of spacecraft and everything um, up there orbiting Earth. And the office here at JPL is actually... We get discoveries come in from all over the world, from different observatories, of sightings of asteroids. And then our team here calculates their orbits and calculates them out for the next 100 years at least to see if there's ever going to be any danger of that asteroid passing too close to Earth. So we have sort of different functions, but there's certainly a lot of overlap just because people can see these meteors. And so I get a lot of those questions on Asteroid Watch. So, you know, it was really interesting, though, to be able to to see that event happen so quickly and get the science community involved in it so quickly and and answer people's questions about it. We actually were we did a broadcast the following day, and it was hugely popular. It was one of our most viewed broadcasts ever. Um, so that's, you know, getting out there and just being able to answer all those questions is has been really helpful, and I hope helpful for the public. Veronica McGregor, thank you so much for all the work that you do and that your team does and that everyone at NASA does for on social. I know there are just so many countless amount of people who have just been, you know, so excited by being able to follow all of these different missions and learn so much about it and connect with it. And so many kids out there who are inspired by all of this and hopefully will go on to to STEM careers and, and really get more involved in this. And so much of it is because of the work that you and your team have done in making it so much more accessible. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining us on the Webby Podcast. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you so much to Veronica for chatting with us and stopping by the studio. And a huge thank you to both the NASA JPL team and all NASA agencies for the incredibly important work they do. All of NASA's social platforms are great to dive into, but follow NASA JPL and Mars Curiosity to keep up with their latest missions. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you could take a few seconds to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the Webby Awards, visit us at webbyawards.com, W-E-B-B-Y awards.com, or on social platforms at the Webby Awards. As always, you can reach me on social at DMD Likes. Our producer is Terrence Brosnan. Our writer is Jordana Jarrett. Our editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is all the people who picked Murray State to beat Marquette. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies, and this is the Webby Podcast. Thank you.